Hi folks, Neil here. We want to help answer all your questions about Paris. That's why you can listen to this episode in the Circa app for iPhone and get all the show notes, pictures, maps, and links you need to find everything we tell you about in this Paris guide. Best of all, in the Circa app, you can message a Circa concierge and you can get any question about Paris answered by real people right here. The best way to visit the Eiffel Tower, how to use the metro, where to find an absolutely beautiful brasserie right now in any neighborhood. We're giving you a friend to ask anywhere in the world. Real people, no AI ever. And for a limited time, it's completely free. The Circa Travel app is available in the App Store right now or at circatravel.com. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Welcome to Circa. In this episode, we will be listing a lot of dishes, restaurants, chefs, and more in Paris. The city is one of the food capitals of the world, and there is a lot of info here. But don't worry, there will be maps, notes, and info on the places mentioned in these guides in the Circa app, as well as all the other full guide episodes to this timelessly delectable city. One easy subscription unlocks the world. So, whether you're in Paris or heading there right now or sometime in the near future, or would just like to learn all about the food culture that shaped this city, you're in the right place. This is what we do. So just sit back, take a seat on the sidewalk terrace at our local bistro, maybe order wine, and let us eat our way through Paris. Circa. Love the world you live in and we'll help you explore it. In French culture, food is everything. The French do not see food as fuel, but as a thrice-daily guarantee of the oh-so-important little pleasures that make life worth living. From the first coffee and croissant in the morning to the last tisane herbal tea after the evening meal, all that is devoured is to be savored for as long as possible. Each region has its own unique set of conditions known to the French as terroir. And from this terroir, mouth-watering ingredients are extracted. Oysters from Normandy, olives from Provence, beef from Burgundy, clementines from Corsica, delicious nutty comté cheese from the Jura. And the list goes on. When it comes to fresh ingredients, The French have some of the best in the world, if we may say so ourselves. In the wee hours of each morning, trucks and trains carrying the latest delicious ingredients arrive at Rangis International Market. 
It's a gargantuan complex of food halls about nine miles south of Paris. In fact, this is the world's largest wholesale food market. If you are really wild about produce, you can even book a tour. This means that restaurateurs and chefs in Paris get the cream of the crop, literally. The food scene here is kind of a microcosm of all the French regions, plus other cultures and countries near, like Italy, Spain, Portugal, Germany, and far, like the former colonies of France across North and West Africa and Southeast Asia. Food, and really good food at that, is literally on every street corner. By the best count, there are more than 15,000 restaurants in Paris and more than a hundred of these have been awarded at least one coveted Michelin star. This is a city where good food is seen as a necessity. We would go as far as to say that it is seen as a human right. Food, how it's produced, bought, sold and consumed is political. And in tracing the city's relationship with food, from the revolution to the birth of the restaurant, we are going to get right to the heart or belly of French culture. With such a rich history and a mouth-watering offering of food and drink, the only dilemma is where on earth to begin. Well, that's what we're here to help with. La Bonne Bouffe Julia Child said, in France, cooking is a serious art form and a national sport. She was born in Pasadena, California, but quickly fell in love with France, and particularly French cuisine, when she moved to Paris after World War II. She is credited with bringing French cuisine to the American public, and her estimation is pretty accurate. Paris is a city of contrast and contradictions. The food here is no exception. This city is the cradle of fine dining, but is also a place where good food, or la bonne bouffe, is considered an essential part of life, and that's whatever your background and budget. In the UK or the US, the idea of locally sourced ingredients from farmers markets and conversation about food and dining might be seen as a snooty kind of thing. Reverence for food and access to fine ingredients is often associated with the elite of society. This is not so in France. The geography of the country is so varied and the rich agriculture goes back millennia. In France, the term paysan, which translates as peasant, has a whole different connotation than it does in English. It is earthy, honest, hardy and not in the least pejorative. Farmers are powerful and respected in their communities and they wield a load of political clout. Each year, Paris hosts the Salon de l'Agriculture, a vast trade show where you will find a load of plants, animals and the people who cultivate them. It is a political must that the president attends and their reception there is often seen as a litmus test of how their presidency is going. From the 1100s onwards, which is as long as most records go back, Paris life has centered around food. 
The wholesale market was not always in Rangis. From the 1100s up until 1969, the city's principal food hall was right in the heart of Paris in the central Parisian district still known today as Les Halles. Parisians called this the Stomach of Paris, the name of a novel by famous 19th-century novelist Émile Zola, and it was a bustling hub of hawkers, restaurateurs, dealers, locals, cooks, busy mothers, chatting, gossiping, haggling and eating. Léal actually started life as a patch of cultivated fields called Les Champoux, or the Little Fields, a name now taken on by a gourmet bistro on the site of the market from French superstar chef Alain Ducasse. Léal was more than a place to buy food. This neighborhood was once a hub for the happenings of the city, where the market was the setting of other, often gruesome, elements of public life and death. For example, for more than half a millennium, the market was neighbored by the Cimetière des Innocents, or Holy Innocent Cemetery, often used for mass graves. It was said that the stench would get so bad that the milk at the market would curdle. Fortunately for everyone, the bones there were taken to a hollowed-out section of the city known today as the Catacombs of Paris. Well worth a visit, by the way. From the Middle Ages onwards, the focal point of the market was, on the king's order, a pillory where people deemed to be wrongdoers were exhibited to the crowd at the market with their head and arms sticking out of holes in a raised tower. Bystanders were encouraged to throw mud and trash at them, while depending on their crimes, the humiliation of pillory could be followed by a public execution by decapitation. This went on right up until the French Revolution in 1789, although the beheading didn't stop there, as we know. Under the reign of Louis XIV, Rue Réaumur, a cobbled lane just north of the market, was the site of one of the largest slums in the city, the Cour des Miracles, or Courts of Miracles. This particular one was immortalized by Victor Hugo in The Hunchback of Notre Dame. Dens of crime and poverty, so named because the supposedly disabled inhabitants who lived there would miraculously be healed when they returned after a day begging on the streets. When the market closed up shutters for the last time in 1969, it was a huge shift for the inhabitants of Paris. You can see this momentous occasion depicted inside Saint-Eustache Church, a stunning mix of Gothic and Renaissance architecture to the north of Léal metro station. There's a little statue of the vendors moving their goods out for the last time. From the church, you'll see the grand dome of the Bourse de Commerce. This round building was once the grain exchange and in 2020 opened as a contemporary art gallery showing the impressive collection of François Pinault, founder of French luxury conglomerate Kering. The two glass and cast iron Halles were dismantled and reconstructed, one in the eastern suburbs of Paris and the other was put on the Trans-Siberian and went all the way to the Japanese port town of Yokohama.
But plenty of vestiges of the market remain. And this quartier or neighborhood is a great place to start your food journey through Paris. Duck down the side of Saint-Eustache Church to find Rue Montorgueil. Immediately, you'll notice the concentration of food shops that line each side of this narrow cobblestone street. These are known as commerce de bouche, or mouth shops, independent vendors qualified as food professionals in every specialty. Bakers, butchers, fishmongers, cheesemongers, to chocolate or sweet makers, pastry chefs and delicatessens. Try family-run La Fermette at number 86 for an outstanding selection of cheeses. At number 51, you will find Storer, the gorgeous romantic murals on the walls inside hark back to the pastry shop's 18th-century origins. It was founded by the personal pâtissier of Louis XV and is the oldest of its kind in Paris. You have to try the delightfully sweet and boozy Baba au Rome. This is where the Parisian classic pastry was invented by Nicolas Storer himself. And the feasting doesn't end on the street. The Escargot restaurant at number 38 Rue Montorgueil has been serving gourmet snails sourced from Burgundy since 1832. Reserve ahead to secure an unforgettable dining experience in the Second Empire Dining Hall, complete with clean white tablecloths. Here, as well as the legendary snails, you can sample other French classics, such as Blanquette de Vaux, that's a traditional veal ragout, or a tender artichaut entier, a whole artichoke cooked to perfection. You'll be in good company. Salvador Dali, Marcel Proust, and Sarah Bernard all ate here. Further north up the street, you'll find Au Rocher de Cancale, the almost 200-year-old eatery that was a favorite of local dandies and artists such as Honoré de Balzac and Alexandre Dumas. Today it's a busy spot, popular with the staff at the tech companies and ad agencies that have moved into this once-working-class hood, serving up an excellent selection of French classics, entrecote steak and fries, or fresh seafood like oysters and whelks. We'll share all the details in the show notes. In the same area, food enthusiasts will love all the stores in and around this district. Gé de Tout on Rue Ticton is a favorite with professional chefs as well as local Epicureans. The name of the store, a pun, says it all. Gé de Tout, or I have a bit of everything. Here, you'll find a fragrant selection of rare spices, as well as pots and honey, jam and all the secret ingredients that make French patisserie so delicious. After a busy day stocking up on edible delights, head to Bouillon Chartier to get a feel of what La Bonne Bouffe culture is all about. These retro cantines are a throwback to cheerful and traditional French dining from the 19th century. Chartier, north of Léal in the Grand Boulevard neighborhood, is the oldest in the city and still has the original vast two-level dining hall decorated with mirrors, wood paneling and Art Nouveau lanterns. Prices are low, food is tasty and traditional, think escargot smothered in garlic or confit canard with grenaille potatoes, and the waiters dressed in white shirts and waistcoats scribbling customers' orders on their paper placemats 
energetically topping up the dangerously cheap wine. Revolutionary Bread In 1682, Louis XIV moved the entire French royal court out of the city center to the Palace of Versailles, which the king envisioned as a grand, lavish estate. This display of extravagance was the stark difference between the haves and have-nots. But where each individual Frenchman and woman felt that difference most was food. Either you were wealthy and were used to feasts of meat pies and terrines, elaborate desserts and roasted vegetables, served all at once in a style known as service en confusion or service in confusion. Or you were poor and your diet centered around meager stocks and broths and bread, which was often stale, hence the need to dip it in the broth. Bread could make up to 80% of a household's budget in those days, so there was only a thin line between survival and starvation if bread prices rose. It was a bread shortage in 1789 that sparked a revolt of 8,000 women, matriarchs of their families, who were so hungry and angry that they marched all the way out to Versailles. First, they stormed the armory and stole a bunch of weapons. Then, they successfully besieged the palace and brought the king and his family back to Paris with them. It was one of the most significant early events of the coming revolution. But weirdly, the events that had led to this bread crisis began six years prior, not in France, but in southern Iceland. Across eight months that proved deadly for the local population, the lackey volcanic fissure erupted, throwing out lava and gases and laying ruin to the land, people and the livestock. A cloud of dust and sulfur spread over the countries in the northern hemisphere. The disruption to weather patterns wreaked havoc on the climate from New Orleans to Egypt. For France, the result was a blighted wheat crop. At the time, Paris was filled with revolutionary propaganda and examples of what today we might call fake news. The French state of the 18th century was pretty concerned about the dangers of famine, the dangers to their position, if not for loss of life. The state kept a close eye on the grain trade to make sure that bread prices would not get too high. Louis XVI was accused by conspirators of taking part in a famine pact, supposedly speculating on grain prices, which caused the city to starve while the monarchy got richer. And of course, there was Mary Antoinette's famous line, let them eat cake, that has come to represent the excesses of the French monarchy. Now it was technically brioche, and she probably didn't actually say it, but you get the point. Bread had the power to break the monarchy. These days, the French state doesn't take any chances with the price of bread. After the French Revolution, the First Republic passed a law requiring bakeries to officially give notice of when they were intending to take summer vacation. If they close, they are required to put a notice in their window with information on where the nearest open bakery can be found. 
Until 1987, the price of bread was strictly regulated by the state. There are still very specific rules about bread labeling. The type, weight and price of bread must be clearly displayed and each boulangerie must show a poster in its window detailing all these prices. The regulation is not messing about. It even gets specific about the size of the font required on the poster. Each kind of bread is strictly defined. Most Parisians opt for a tradi or a baguette tradition. Thanks to the 1993 bread decree, that's right, a governmental decree. <laughs> These bad boys are protected by law. They must be made on site and must be made with only four ingredients, flour, yeast, water and salt. Every year, there is a competition for the best baguette in Paris, organized by the City Hall. The panel of bread experts, a mixture of chefs, journalists and six ordinary Parisians chosen at random, test hundreds of loaves and declare a winner and nine runners-up. The bread is judged on set criteria. Baking the crumb or me, the taste, smell and appearance. The winning boulangerie provides the bread for the president at the Élysée Palace for the next year. In 2020, the winner was Taïb Sahal at Les Saveurs de Pierre de Mour in the well-heeled 17th arrondissement in the northwest of the city. In 2021, it was Les Boulangers de Reuilly with baker Macramacrout in the 12th arrondissement in the east of Paris. Bakers will display their award in the window. Sometimes fancy, hip bakeries win, but often neighborhood spots do, and so you may see these signs recognizable by two curved blades of wheat forming a circle, where you least expect them, so keep your eyes peeled. Hi everyone, Circa's recruiting new concierges. A Circa concierge is a friend to ask anywhere in the world. Real people, on the ground, never bots. If you want to be a concierge for your city, go to circatravel.com to sign up. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. The OG Celebrity Chef. By 1870, almost a century after the French Revolution, Paris was starving once more. The first revolution, which deposed the monarchy, was followed by an empire under Napoleon Bonaparte. Then, the restoration of the monarchy, then more revolution, and a second empire under Bonaparte's nephew, Napoleon III. The latter came to a messy end with the culmination of the Franco-Prussian War. Between September 1870 and January 1871, the Prussian army surrounded Paris. Instead of besieging the city, which would have been chaotic and bloody, the leader of the German army, Helmut von Moltke, opted instead to make Parisians submit the most effective way he knew how, by targeting their stomachs. 
The German army blocked food supplies into the city, and siege cuisine was born. Cat, dog, and rat butchers appeared, and for the Epicureans left behind, desperate measures were taken. The animals from the Jardin des Plantes Zoo, which you can still visit today, were slaughtered and served up as gourmet meat. Voisin, a long-closed gourmet restaurant in the first arrondissement, today the site of a Dior boutique, served a multi-course Christmas feast featuring dishes to make even the most dedicated carnivore squeam. How about some roasted cat flanked by rats? Or a spot of camel, roasted English style. By January, there were reportedly almost no domestic animals left. But it was in the wake of this misery that the most important period in the history of French food took place. And this is when Paris was established as the center of fine dining. None of it would have happened without the work of one quiet but wildly ambitious man, Auguste Escoffier. Escoffier was responsible for codifying haute cuisine and formalizing the way a professional kitchen is run. The standards he set by organizing the kitchen in stations of brigades, sort of military-like ranks, still reign today. A prolific writer, his most complete tome Le Guide Culinaire, which features more than 5,000 recipes, remains a reference for classically trained chefs. The man who would go on to become the most in-demand and famous chef in the world came from humble beginnings. At 12, he left school and began working as an apprentice in his uncle's restaurant in the south of France. At the time, kitchens were unsanitary and dangerous places to work. As a rule, cooks smoked cigarettes and drank wine on the job. Alcohol was often safer to consume than the tap water. There was little ventilation, so between the ovens and the bodies, kitchens got so incredibly hot that chefs would often sweat right into the food they were serving. During the Franco-Prussian War, Escoffier was just coming up. After learning the key techniques of cooking in a trendy Paris restaurant, he joined the army as a military chef. In the context of the produce shortage, young Auguste was forced to get inventive, making haute cuisine from ingredients like horse meat and turnips. He made a reported 100 recipes using these and other rather limited and totally unappetizing ingredients. After the war, he left turnips far behind, working in the kitchen of the Hotel Monte Carlo in Monaco. Here, he met Swiss hotel impresario César Ritz, and a partnership was born that would produce some of the world's most opulent and luxurious hotels. The Savoy and Carlton in London, the Pierre in New York, and the Ritz in Paris. Escoffier's early experience of unruly and unsanitary kitchens, as well as his time in the army, combined to compel him to bring both rigor and dignity to the profession of chef. As soon as he ran his own kitchen, he banned smoking, drinking, and swearing on the job. He created a quiet, studious atmosphere, in contrast to the rowdy chaos that went before, and never raised his voice. When Ritz and Escoffier opened the Savoy, 
1889, the experience of refined dining, which had been the preserve of private catered dinner parties, was open to the public. Out of preference, but also necessity, with the volume of patrons, Escoffier's new system of brigades in the kitchen allowed service to be quicker and more fluid. For the first time, wealthy women were allowed to go out to eat in public, and fashions would evolve accordingly. Dining became an event, a place to see and be seen, and was often accompanied by live music. Escoffier's restaurants welcomed all the great of turn-of-the-century society, royalty, the wealthy business jet-set, artists, actors, and so on. The chef made sure to greet VIPs personally and named signature dishes after them, like the Peach Melba, after an Australian opera star named Nellie Melba. But he was by no means an elitist and also advocated for his kitchen staff, pioneering social security for their retirement and sometimes funding their education. He wanted to elevate the profession and as such asked his chefs to always arrive in suits before changing into their whites and to change back into them at the end of the day. He was ahead of his time on food waste too, making sure leftover dishes were donated to those in need. He even wrote books about affordable ingredients such as salted fish and rice in a bid to democratize cooking skills. All of these elements, his efforts both in the kitchen and out, created a persona that sold the idea of French cuisine both figuratively and literally. In particular, in the United States and United Kingdom, he popularized importing French ingredients and wines, a kind of proto-influencer. He did a great job. The perception of French food as the reference when it comes to fine dining continues today. In the early 1900s, France began to develop the labeling system known today as Appellation d'Origine Contrôlée, AOC, Controlled Designation of Origin, the certification system that stamps certain products, often cheese and wine, but also butter, salt, fruits, as the unique and authentic version to represent their terroir. The most famous example is Champagne, which can only be named as such if produced in the Champagne region in northern France. Around the same time, the first Michelin guide was published by the tire company as a marketing device to encourage more Frenchies to drive by enticing them with restaurants. Paris has plenty of Michelin-starred restaurants, as well as addresses that have been awarded the more recent designation of Bib Gourmand for good quality, good value dining. And while we're at table, here's a quick note on how it all works. There are three courses, entrée, plat and dessert. But there's also cheese and coffee. We'll talk about those two. When you enter a restaurant, greet the server and tell them how many you are in your party. They may ask you if you want to be seated outside, en terrasse, or inside, à l'intérieur. A server will then either offer you printed menus or direct you to the day's dishes on a chalkboard. Entrée is a starter. Typical examples include a seasonal vegetable soup, velouté du jour, 
roasted camembert, or raw tuna tartare. This is followed by your plat, or main dish. Think steak and fries, fish of the day with roasted veggies, or even a burger. Usually, you will order these two courses straight up and order any cheese or dessert after you have eaten your main course. Now, and this is very important, the French eat cheese either instead or before dessert, not after the sweet course. There is usually a cheese option on the dessert menu, which will be served with jam or relish and bread. And now, desserts. In general, French bistro desserts are very sweet and very delicious. A typical choice would be a crème brûlée, a custardy pudding with a crunchy burnt sugar top, or a chocolate fondant, a chocolate cake with melted chocolate inside. There is usually a lighter choice of plain yogurt, fromage blanc, or fruit salad. When all the eating is over and you feel just about ready to be rolled back to your accommodation, it's time to round off the meal with a coffee. A coffee, a café, will mean an espresso. For a shot of coffee with extra water, ask for a café allongé. For a frothy, creamy cup of joe, ask for a café crème. Decaf is decaf. Or opt for a digestif like cognac or calvados. Service is often included. You can check on the bill for the words service compris. You are not obliged to tip, but if you have received great service, feel free to. The servers will be delighted. Now you can roll home and take a nap. The Meeting of Worlds, the Birth of Bistronomy. The Bistro is the most typical Parisian eating place, known for its sidewalk terraces. The term originates from the Prussian occupation of Paris in 1870, when busy officers would demand their food quickly. Bistro! These down-to-earth sidewalk cafes are peppered throughout Paris, easily recognizable by their zinc countertops, menus written on chalkboards and tightly packed terraces out the front. Expect all the French classics like bœuf bourguignon, roast chicken, steak frites and tartare. Some fine examples include L'Européen by Gare de Lyon, Aux Deux Amis in the Oberkampf district or Le Bistro Polbert near Charonne. We'll put them in the notes for you. In more recent years, the know-how and high standards of French gastronomy, as set out by Escoffier, have blended with a more relaxed and seasonal approach to dining to create the bistronomy movement. The latest iteration of this movement started in the 11th arrondissement on the right bank, where there is a constellation of hip restaurants that celebrate seasonal ingredients from small producers and natural wines. Septime was one of the first to bridge the gap between high dining and neo-bistro. Nearby, you'll also find Yard, Frenchie and Buvette. You will find no shortage of fusion food either, where standout independent restaurants use French ingredients to make dishes inspired by other cultures. Try Servant for Filipino-inspired food. 
Michelin-starred mazuki for West African cuisine, shabur for Israeli fine dining, or the kombuch for Cambodian flavors. Also, there's the wildly popular Big Mama restaurants for Italian, or Bashir, for life-changingly good Lebanese ice cream topped with pistachio. In Paris, meat and fish dominate, and it can be a tricky landscape for vegetarians, in particular in traditional bistros. Vegetarian dishes aren't usually signposted on the menu like you would be used to in New York or London. The terms vegetarian and vegan, however, should be known by all servers, and more and more places these days will have a veggie burger or a meat-free salad on the menu. And there are some veggie addresses worth seeking out. For example, try the wildly popular Lamb and Monkeys, a small Franco-Japanese bakery chain serving up vegan patisserie and croque-monsieur. Rendez-vous en terrasse. If you really want to explore the Paris food scene like a local, there's something you need to do first. Relax. Relâche-toi, as we like to say. Put aside ideas of frantically calling for a reservation. You may still want to make one, but that's not the point. French leisure is all about spontaneity and seeing where the moment, or evening, takes you. Nothing epitomizes this more than the ritual of the early evening aperitif, or as the French lovingly call it, l'apéro. It's sort of like happy hour, or after work drinks at the pub, in that it's a moment to decompress at the end of the day. You're sipping on a good drink, very often this is wine, while eating some light but delicious food, most typically a planche or board piled high with either fromage, charcuterie, or a bit of both, la planche mixte. During l'apéro, friends will meet to share their woes, celebrate their triumph, or set the world to rights debating politics, philosophy, or talking fashion and style. It's a kind of social commons, and its importance goes way beyond what is eaten and drunk. And that makes sense, right? Because what we have learned is that in Paris, food is never not important. For hundreds of years, the food market was quite literally the center of the city. And today, the capital still provides a mouth-watering selection of places to buy and consume la bonne bouffe. The attachment between a French person and the baguette may be a cliché, but it's a true one. The staple of bread is so important that a shortage of it brought down the monarchy, and the president is only served the loaf deemed the very best in Paris. When you're on terrasse, sipping on a fruity glass of red Côte du Rhône and creamy goat cheese, you will realize just how important food is to this country. So eat plenty and enjoy. We consider it a patriotic duty.
Thanks for listening to our Paris Eat Here episode. Now that you've eaten your way around the French capital, remember to check out the other Paris episodes in this guide for more dives into the city's art history, the fascinating love story between Paris and jazz pioneers, and a closer look at the French aesthetic. Whether you're heading to Paris right now, sometime in the near future, or would just like to learn all about a place we truly love, you'll get instant access to the full guide, plus new episodes on a regular basis when you subscribe to Circa. Find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or download the Circa app, where you can also get pictures and maps and notes on this episode and more. Maybe you'll want to sample our guides for Rome, Iceland, New York, LA, and many, many more. Circa. Love the world you live in and we'll help you explore it.